Der nationale Stolz und ihre Zuversicht sind gestärkt worden angesichts dieser Demonstration der Kraft und Entschlossenheit und Geschlossenheit unseres Volkes. From the lightning attacks on Poland in 1939, through the Battle of Britain in 1940, during campaigns in Africa and Italy, his was a voice that shook the world. I'm Richard Dowdell. On June 6, 1944, the task of silencing Adolf Hitler and his Third Reich was the job of the largest Allied military force ever gathered. You could depend on the guy on your right, the guy on your left, the guy in front of you, and the guy in back of you. It was a slaughter. It, it, it was pure chaos. Oh yeah, well, there were paratroopers hanging in the trees, some of the trees that we were around. I don't know whether it was uh, too busy to be scared or worried or what, but we just knew we had to do, a, do what we were supposed to do. These are some of the men who played a part in history, who lived D-Day. Mission Liberation. I don't think there was a man on the beach that wasn't scared and, you know, praying. And, of course, they were still fighting and trying to get out of there because we were losing so many on the beach. <laughs> All I want to do is get back safe. You didn't see any long faces. Or, uh, I mean, the, the morale uh, of the division was tremendous. Planning for the World War II D-Day invasion of German-controlled Normandy beaches along the French coast started long before that windy and rain-dampened day. Planning began before America was even in the war. An event, half a world away, forced what American generals expected. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WR for further development. The U.S. was in the war. chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. Your hit parade. But all. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. Yes, Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. And here's number two. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. One plan detailed the use of Great Britain with its numerous ports as a base and staging point for an invasion of Western Europe across the English Channel. The land also provided the much needed air bases from which the air war leading up to the invasion could continue. Those bases were also critical for controlling the air during the operation and in the days and weeks following the first landings. The first American troops to reach the United Kingdom arrived at a Belfast port in January 1942. So for over two years, the build-up to Operation Overlord, as the D-Day invasion was codenamed, took place. I'm a World War V and 10 cent store manager in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. One of the thousands of young American men to answer the nation's first call was Wilson Prickett. I have a draft deferment because of my position at that time. And the day after Pearl Harbor, I went to the draft board and uh, asked that my deferment no longer be honored, that I was ready to go. But Prickett's training was geared not for the war in the Pacific, but to breach the Germans' Atlantic Wall. His training dragged on for months. We did not know when the invasion would happen. We knew that somehow we were going to be part of that invasion whenever it came. And uh, we took our training seriously. We had no leaves. It was all work and no play. Just getting to English shores was a challenge for the American forces. 
German subs torpedoed numerous troop ships and merchant vessels. Enid, Oklahoma farm boy Elmer Levengood made that voyage. It was kind of hair-raising. Halfway, we was uh, uh, torpedoed. Uh, we were in a convoy, but the <coughs> torpedo hit our propeller, broke our propeller off, and hit a ship beside us, and uh, it sank. And the many, many draftees that followed them uh, had become a very experienced group of soldiers. They had a lot of training. Military historian General Bruce Jacobs. They probably had more training than any soldiers we've ever committed to combat. And they'd waited a long time to go into combat. Would the training be enough? It strikes you as, as being an inc incredible undertaking to have even contemplated um, g going against a well-entrenched enemy uh, an enemy who'd been well entrenched and in position for as many years as the Germans had been. Uh, well organized, uh, good, tough, professional fighting army. Uh, and, and from the American standpoint, uh, frankly, a largely untried army. I think uh, in, the, uh, in the invasion there only was one infantry division that uh, had seen any substantial combat before and one uh, airborne division that had seen some combat. And uh, we were sending them in uh, against a heavily fortified uh, region manned by extremely uh, professional troops, and, and I might add, uh, in, a, in a very difficult uh, terrain environment. By June 1944, the Allies had built up a formidable force, an armada of nearly 1,500 warships, about the same number of merchant ships. 4,000 landing ships were in waiting, for the air war, there were 13,000 aircraft, 5,000 of those fighters, and 4,000 bombers. Canada contributed 175,000 troops. The UK, 1,700,000. Various other allied nations sent 44,000, and the US had 1,500,000 troops ready for the jump off. For one US second lieutenant, the road that eventually took him to the beaches of Normandy took a strange turn. Well, as a young boy, is there any um uh, good young German, I wanted to be a soldier. Ken Renberg, now living in Tulsa, grew up a loyal German. And I had two ambitions in life. One was to be an engineer and one was to be an army officer. Both of which I realized, except that I became an army officer in the American army. For a young Jewish German, life in the 1930s turned upside down. After Hitler came to power, all of a sudden we were told we were not Germans which was a heck of a surprise to us, especially since my family had probably lived in Germany for over a thousand years. What had been normal, everyday activity was now closed to him. I was in the Boy Scouts, which was a paramilitary organization, and uh, which I had to leave in 33 because I was Jewish, and uh, I had to leave uh, high school, I think, in 1935 for the same reason. His was one of the lucky families. With relatives already living in Oklahoma, they were able to get out of Germany before Jews were herded into concentration camps and extermination camps. The young Renberg then was as loyal an American as he ever was a German and became a GI. I was not fighting the Germans, I was fighting the uh, Nazism because uh, the average German with uh, whom I grew up uh, was a good person, and I didn't have any problem with that. The point is, once 
you're in combat, you think about preserving your own life. And uh, ideology goes out of the window. The Army started to build up its forces in the United Kingdom as early as the spring of 19, late winter, early spring of 1942. So as you can imagine, some of those troops uh, who remained in the United Kingdom and trained and trained and trained for two full years were uh, getting kind of tired of, of, of training by the time 1944 came around. As military historian General Bruce Jacobs says, the men were ready. At the same time, the brass was busy finalizing the when and where. The obvious place for it to occur was the area straight across the English Channel known as the Pas de Calais, which is 22 miles from the British coast. World War II historian Will Cavanaugh says the Allies weren't about to do the expected. Uh, therefore, to achieve the element of surprise, they made it look as if that's where they were going to land by positioning uh, fall, uh, fake tanks, planes, troop movements and stuff on the south coast opposite the Pas de Calais but the actual landings as we know were carried out in Normandy uh, which is a distance in some instances of 150 kilometers uh, from the English coast. I always wanted to waltz in Berlin. This was no cakewalk. Kavanaugh points out the Germans had enjoyed the luxury of several years of occupation in France, time to build defenses, defenses they called the Atlantic Wall. It was an extensive uh, network or system of uh, beach obstacles, uh, for example, uh, limpet mines fixed on wooden posts, steel spikes to rip the bottoms out of boats, uh, uh, anti-personnel mines on the beaches, uh, sort of uh, these things called tetrahedra. There, there were a whole bunch of different beach obstacles. Behind the beach obstacles, you had machine gun positions, mortar positions, then you had coastal artillery positions. Uh, they had bunkers that provided interlocking fields of fire across the beaches. In other words, laterally as opposed to out in front of them. Manning one of the hundreds of artillery batteries dotting the Atlantic Wall was a young 19-year-old German soldier, John Baum. We had artillery base with five large guns. Was on top of a hill, was there for years. Baum recalls a special visitor to his battery. Giving the troops a pep talk was the man who created the Atlantic Wall, Field Marshal Rommel. One month before the invasion, we had General Rommel coming by our unit, and he made kind of pep talks. We knew the invasion would come. When, we didn't know. What day? He spoke about the invasion, the upcoming invasion, he, he was a go-getter. Given the challenge to breach Rommel's defenses was the Allies' Supreme Commander, General Dwight Eisenhower. As Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, there is imposed on me the duty and responsibility of taking all measures necessary to the prosecution of the war. Prompt and willing obedience to the orders that I shall issue is essential. D-Day Mission Liberation will continue in a moment.